Chapter 4 of Down in Water Street by Samuel Hadley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 My Life Story. I was born in Malta Township, Morgan County, Ohio, on the banks of the Muskingum River, August 27, 1842, the youngest of six children. My father was a New Hampshire man who went west when young to seek his fortune. My mother was the daughter of a congregational clergyman in Massachusetts. Her only brother, Samuel Hopkins Riddell, after whom I am named, was also a clergyman. My grandmother on my mother's side was a Hopkins. Her father founded the Hopkins Academy in Old Hadley, Mass. On my mother's side, I am a direct descendant of the famous divine Jonathan Edwards. After my mother's education was finished, she too went to Ohio to teach. My father was a partner of the Buckinghams of Zanesville and Putnam, Ohio. He afterwards moved to Malta and bored two salt wells there. He failed in the great crisis of 1837, but had invested for my mother and bought a section of land from the government in Perry County adjoining. There, father moved with his family in the dead of winter in 1845. We moved into a log house in the forest primeval that surrounded us. This section of land lay on the dividing ridges of Sunday Creek and Monday Creek in Salt Lake Township, Perry County, Ohio. In our log cabin home, I could lie on my bed and see the stars through the cracks of the roof and feel the snow sifting down upon my face in the wintertime. We were lulled to sleep by the barking of foxes and the hooting of owls in the woods around us and were awakened in the morning by the chattering of the gray squirrels near our windows. From my earliest recollection, I was raised to clearing land, helping to get our large farm under cultivation. The heft of the work devolved upon my elder brother, Henry H., and myself. My oldest brother, William, died in the university at Delaware, Ohio, as he was about to finish his education. I had two sisters living older than myself, Lucy Hopkins and Hannah Eastman. The eldest child, a girl, died in early infancy. My sisters were converted in the old log meeting house which my beloved father built and gave to the Methodist Episcopal Church, which was dedicated as Young's Chapel, after the celebrated Methodist preacher, the Reverend Jacob Young, D.D. They were about twelve years old when they were marvelously saved at the mourner's bench and received a definite baptism of the Holy Spirit. The eldest, Lucy, died in 1879. She prayed for me until the last. Shortly before her death, she said to her husband, Robert, Hop will be saved. How do you know, said he, who was at that time an unbeliever? Because Jesus told me so, she said. My younger sister, Mrs. Hannah E. Allen, is living today surrounded by her children and grandchildren. The neighborhood in which we lived was very primitive, entirely a farming section. Most of the people lived in log cabins and opportunities for education were very meager. I attended school altogether about four months in the old log schoolhouse with puncheon floors, one whole side of the house being used as a fireplace. In this log cabin home, we were brought up to fear God. Family worship was strictly observed morning and evening. I shall never forget the influence of that home, that sweet Christian mother, precious, gentle, and tender, brought up amid refinement, unused to hard work, out there in our frontier home, she did all the work with the aid of us children. No whiskey or tobacco ever invaded the sacred precincts of our long cabin home. 
I promised my mother as early as I can remember, when being taught my first prayers at her blessed knees, that I would never drink. Indeed, I promised her that before I ever knew what the evils of liquor were. Often in her busy cares, as she would pass by me, she would stop and hug me to her bosom and say, My darling boy, you never will drink, will you? As I would look into her lovely face, I would say, No, mother, I will never drink. This promise I kept until my eighteenth year, when I was induced to take my first drink. A friend of ours, a man some years older than myself, a prominent businessman, had been to town. He got quite drunk and had a bottle of whiskey with him. I met him on the big road. It was a beautiful moonlit evening, and he stood there perhaps half an hour coaxing me to take a drink, the bottle in one hand and a corn cob stopper in the other. Come, come, Hop, he said. Do take a drink. Now be sociable. No, I said, I can't drink with you. I didn't say, as I should have done, that I had promised my mother I would never drink. Come, said he, if you don't drink with me, I will think that you feel yourself above me. I felt stung at this and took the bottle from his hand and turned it up, and with my eyes on the moon, which was looking so kindly down on me, I took my first drink. Dear reader, I have been careful in making this statement complete, as this was the most critical act of my life up to that time. The first drink changed my whole life. Within ten minutes, it seemed to me I was taken possession of by demons. Thoughts came crowding into my mind, to which I had been an entire stranger. Oh, the sorrow and shame and crime and suffering that were entailed as direct results of that first drink. It isn't the last drink that hurts a man, or the fourth or the fifth, but the first drink. That is what ruins a man. If these pages are read by one who has not taken his first drink, take counsel by one who has suffered so much, and die before you take it. Let the saloon door be the dead line to you. Within a week from that first drink, I could drink a half pint of whiskey right down. My precious mother died shortly after this without having known that I had broken my promise. She was sitting in her chair when the angels came for her, and she said to tell my sisters who were standing by, Tell Hopkins to meet me in heaven. Yes, dear mother, by the grace of God, I will meet you there. Six months afterwards, my father died, and our home was broken up. I went to study medicine in a village nearby with one of the most prominent physicians in our county. He was a brilliant man, but a drunkard, and what I didn't know before, he taught me. Before my course was finished, I got into trouble through drink and had to clear out as fast as my horse could go. In fact, I kept clearing out for some years afterwards in pretty much the same way from every place that I settled. I gave up my studies and became a professional gambler. For fifteen years, I rarely went to bed sober. For many years, I did not see my danger or was too much under the influence of liquor to think seriously on the subject. Occasionally, however, ominous forebodings would arise in my heart, and I wondered what the end would be. In 1870, it grew entirely too hot for me out west, and I came to New York. Through the influence of my brother, Colonel H. H. Hadley, who was here and who stood high in life insurance circles, I obtained a position with a salary of $300 per month and a liberal allowance for expenses. The failure of the company I was with threw me out of a position, and I never was able to command as good a salary afterward. I wish I could describe the remorse and heartaches of the confirmed drunkard who feels himself, slowly but surely, slipping down to that awful abyss, the drunkard's hell, 
a foretaste of which he already feels in his soul. I have passed through it all. A pen of iron with the point of a diamond, even in the hand of a prophet, Jeremiah could not describe it. Through the craving for drink and under the hellish influence of its promptings, a man will wreck his home, will lie too, and deceive his best friends, his wife, and everybody who knows or trusts him. I had lied, stolen, and forged checks. The law, relentless as a bloodhound, urged on by my outraged and defrauded creditors, was on my track. So weak I could scarcely stand or think, unable to sleep or eat, still I knew that if I did not make certain crooked things straight at once, I would be arrested and locked in a felon's cell. I could see only one thing to do, just what the devil wanted me to do, and that was to go and perpetrate some crime greater than anything I had ever done. Then, in the agony of my soul, delirium tremens came upon me, as stealthily as a snake from behind my door or through a window in the room where I vainly hoped I might get a few hours' sleep. Fiends of the most hellish forms gathered around me, holding their mouths so close that I could feel their scorching breath telling me what to do. While my faithful, loving wife was holding me in her arms, I feared she would be frightened out of her senses by their evil plottings. The advice of these demons, whether real or imaginary, always tended towards self-destruction. Then they would go into the next room and speak so loud that I could hear every word. Often I would rise from my bed, determined to end my life. One particular night at Taylor's Hotel, Jersey City, New Jersey, where I lived for several years, I went to the window several times, determined to jump out and end it all. But an unseen hand restrained me. I could mention in detail the many positions I held, procured chiefly through my brother, who, though a heavy drinker himself at that time, had not been conquered by it. But I have spoken of failures enough. On Tuesday evening, the 18th of April, 1882, I sat in Kirker's Saloon in Harlem at 125th Street and 3rd Avenue. Our home was destroyed, and my faithful, loving wife had gone back south where I had married her. She had stood by me to the last. How she could do it, I cannot understand. Dear, faithful, truthful wife, she is still living, and I pray may be spared many years to me. I think I had never given her a crossword. Surely she had not given me one, but our home was a drunkard's home, and all was gone. I had pawned everything or sold everything that would buy a drink. I could not sleep a wink. I had not eaten for days, and for the four nights preceding I had suffered with delirium tremens from midnight until morning. I had often said I would never be a tramp. I would never be cornered, for if that time ever came, I had determined to find a home in the bottom of the river. But our Lord so ordered it, that when that time did come, I was not able to walk one quarter of the way to the river. I was sitting on a whiskey barrel for perhaps two hours, when all of a sudden I seemed to feel some great and mighty presence. I did not know then what it was. I learned afterwards that it was Jesus, the sinner's friend. Dear reader, never until my dying day will I forget the sight presented to my horrified gaze. My sins appeared to creep along the wall in letters of fire. I turned and looked in another direction, and there I saw them again. I have always believed that I got a view of eternity right there in that gin mill. I believe I saw what every poor lost sinner will see when he stands unrepentant and unforgiven at the bar of God. It filled me with an unspeakable terror. I supposed I was dying, and this was a premonition. 
I believe others in the saloon thought that I was dying, but I cared very little then what people thought of me. I got down from the whiskey barrel with but one desire, and that was to fly from the place. A saloon is an awful place to die in if one has had a praying mother. I walked up to the bar and pounded it with my fist until I made the glasses rattle. Those nearby who were drinking looked on with scornful curiosity. I said, Boys, listen to me. I am dying, but I will die in the street before I will ever take another drink. And I felt as though this would happen before morning. A voice said to me, If you want to keep that promise, go and have yourself locked up. There was no place on earth I dreaded more than a police station, for I was living in daily dread of arrest. But I went to the police station in East 126th Street, near Lexington Avenue, and asked the captain to lock me up. Why do you want to be locked up? asked he, as I gave an assumed name. Because, said I, I want to be placed somewhere so I can die before I get another drink of whiskey. They locked me up in a narrow cell, number 10, in the back corner. That has become a famous cell to me since. For twenty years I have visited that same cell on the anniversary of that awful night of darkness, and have had sweet communion there with Jesus. It seemed that all the demons that could find room came in that place with me that night. They were not all the company I had, either. No, praise the Lord, the dear Savior who came to me in the saloon was present and said, Pray. I did fall on my knees on that stone floor and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. As soon as I was able to leave my cell, I was taken to the police court and arraigned before Justice Bixby. He was very kind and spoke carefully to the officer about my case and remanded me back to the cell. When they deemed it safe to let me go, Mr. Knox McAfee, the clerk of the court, came down to my cell and let me go free. I made my way to my brother's house, where every care was given me. While lying in bed, the admonishing spirits never left me, and when I arose the following Sabbath morning, I felt that that day would decide my fate. End of chapter 4